This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, have NATO forces got it badly wrong in Afghanistan? We can expect the going to remain tough and more lives to be lost, including British lives. And how do we tackle Islamist extremism in Britain? I've been working against violent extremists for the last 15 years. Since the war against Iraq and Afghanistan, there has been an upsurge in violent radical views. Headlines. President Obama's setting out America's strategy in Afghanistan after a review suggested the surge in coalition troops has had an impact on the Taliban. The head of NATO forces, General David Petraeus, has told the president sending thousands more troops to Afghanistan slowed the insurgents' momentum. The founder of the WikiLeaks website, Julian Assange, has been granted bail by a court in London. He's wanted in Sweden on sex offence charges, which he denies. The courts demanded £200,000 before it will let Mr Assange go. The European Court of Human Rights says Ireland's abortion ban violates the rights of pregnant women in life-threatening cases. Many currently travel to the UK for a termination. The MOD's cutting the money servicemen and women can claim to send their children to boarding school. Personnel at sea, as well as those at the MOD in London, will no longer be entitled to almost £6,000 per term. And another cold snap's heading for Britain. There'll be snow across Scotland and some southern parts of England tonight. That's the latest. I'm Vicky Turner. David Petraeus is thought to have told President Obama that America's surge in Afghanistan is working. In the progress report handed to the White House, he's believed to have said that in the year in which an extra 30,000 troops arrived, security has improved in some parts of southern Afghanistan. But that's significantly at odds with the warning from a group of experts on the country. They've written an open letter to the president warning the surge is failing and it's time to open peace talks with the Taliban. We are deeply worried about the current course of the war and the lack of credible scenarios for the future. The situation on the ground is much worse than a year ago. Foreign forces have by now been in Afghanistan longer than the Soviet Red Army. It is time to implement an alternative strategy. President Obama is setting out his strategy for the war in Afghanistan today, while Ahmed Rashid is an expert on both Pakistan and Afghanistan and the author of two books on the subject, and he's one of the 23 signatories of that letter. He's on the line now. Thanks for your time, Ahmed. Um, you say the surge is failing. David Petraeus says it's working. Why do you say he's got it wrong, then? No, I'm not so, uh, I don't think the letter is saying the surge is failing. What it is saying is that the surge is, even if it is partly successful, and it's bound to be partly successful in the sense that there are now uh, 30,000 troops in, in Kandahar and Helmand, two provinces alone, where there were no more than seven or 8,000 before, um, it, the surge is not sustainable in the long term. Uh, that, uh, you know, once American troops start withdrawing, and in the policy review today that has been announced by the White House, it's clear that some troops will start leaving by July 2011. Um, once, you know, American, British troops start leaving, um, we don't believe that this, uh, uh, the, the pressure to keep the Taliban out is going to last very long um, when they're confronting Afghan forces who will be replacing the Americans and the British. 
So it's a question of sustainability, really. Um, you know, are, uh, is the administration, the Afghan army, the police, uh, and all the other state paraphernalia that is needed, is it in place, or will it be in place in the next two or three years? And we are questioning that that is going to be possible. Because you say um, the NATO forces are treating the symptoms, not the disease. The Taliban is exploiting the coalition's mistakes. What mistakes are they making exactly in, in treating those symptoms, not disease? And what do you mean by that? Well, I think, you know, uh, um, the, the symptoms, unfortunately, are a legacy of the last nine years in which you know, um, there has not been sufficient uh, rebuilding, um, winning hearts and minds, uh, infrastructure, uh, producing an indigenous local Afghan economy, um, which could engage the public in, uh, and, and um, uh, secure uh, government support in the areas where the Taliban are. Uh, these areas were left alone for many, many years. Um, many people call the present surge year one of the American presence in Afghanistan. Now, I think that's very significant. I mean, it, because many Americans think, quite frankly, that this is the first serious year in which the economic, military, social issues of Afghanistan have been addressed by the U.S. administration, which, which were not addressed by two Bush uh, uh, administrations. So even after nine years of a Western presence in Afghanistan, if we're still in year one, I think, you know, there, there's an enormously long way to go, um, which is why, uh, uh, you know, something else is needed to break the logjam. And that's something else, um, I think, are uh, talks with the Taliban. I don't think we can have um, a, a sustainable transition to Afghan security and forces in the midst of a civil war and an insurgency need some kind of peaceful settlement so that you can transition in an in in atmosphere of peace All right. rather than war. Ahmed, we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, stay with us, because this week we've heard the latest assessment of the situation in Afghanistan from the Chief of the Defence Staff. General Sir David Richards spoke at the Royal United Services Institute, telling his audience there is progress, but the months ahead will be hard. Now, of course, the significant uplift in troop numbers means an accelerated tempo of operations, and we can expect the going to remain tough and more lives to be lost, including British lives, because war is never without risk, and risk is intrinsic to military operations. Well, Ahmed Rashid is still on the line, and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, joins me in the studio. Um, hi, Christopher. You were in the audience there, weren't you? What did you make of what he had to say? He didn't say anything that he hadn't said. But the idea that he... he when he was supporting the idea that uh, there had been progress, he was actually only talking about the, the past six weeks, and he accepted that up to, say, October the 1st, times are difficult. And this coincides with the report in Washington of 16 intelligence agencies who are saying things aren't as good as you are saying, and it's the sort of thing that uh, Ahmed uh, uh, Rashid has really got, got to. And that is this. Um, up until the 1st of October... All the information that a lot of this stuff was based upon uh, existed. After that, they haven't included it in their reports. What the White House is saying and what General Richards was really saying is that, oh, well, your information isn't up to date. That, frankly, is nonsense. And at the RUSI, where you have the biggest brains in, in, in London's uh, th uh, military think tanks, not one of them was bright enough to question him on this. Mm. Uh, Ahmed, um, just to talk a little bit more about this deal that you would like to see done with the Taliban, what form would it take exactly and how would it work? 
Look, it's, it's very complicated. There have been, for the last two or three years, um, uh, talks about talks, I would call them, uh, between the Karzai government and, the, and some of the Taliban. Um, now, we haven't reached the stage yet of negotiations. And the Taliban have sent out very strong signals, and including uh, to me, who I, and I have met with some of the uh, uh, Taliban, both uh, those who are in Kabul and, and, and people who are outside Kabul, they want to talk directly to the Americans and NATO. Um, they see uh, that as being absolutely critical. And, of course, it's a question of their own prestige. They want to talk to the, occup the occupying forces, not necessarily the protege of the occupying forces, that is Karzai. So, so what is needed here is a, um, is, is a, is a public uh, commitment, which I think a lot of European countries are in favor of, but the Americans are still not, and that is um, a, a commitment to actually talk or engage with the Taliban um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a proper negotiation. Um, so far, we have not seen any indication that President Obama uh, is prepared to do that. And we know that uh, General Petraeus is, in fact, arguing just the opposite. He's saying we want another year or two of the surge uh, to degrade uh, the Taliban to such an extent um, that, there's, um, uh, that then they're forced to the table. And our argument in this piece is basically saying that um, degrading the Taliban could mean eventually that you're left with a completely fragmented body with no central leadership and, in fact, nobody to talk to. Um, and you need to, and anyway, talks are going to take not uh, weeks or months, they might take a year or even two years. And so you need to start that process now, um, well in advance of 2014, when you want to uh, implement this transition to Afghan forces. All right, Ahmed Rashid, good to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time today. Well, America's diplomatic efforts in the region suffered another blow this week with the sudden death of the country's envoy to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Richard Holbrook died after emergency heart surgery. President Obama paid tribute to a man nicknamed the Bulldozer and former Prime Minister Tony Blair said he'd made an enormous contribution to global diplomacy. He was an extraordinarily active uh, diplomat. He was someone with a, a remarkable range of gifts uh, in diplomacy very forthright, very tough, but very smart and strategic. Um, and, you know, there will be a lot of people in many different parts of the world who, who, who are going to miss him and look back on what he did with a lot of gratitude. The Holbrook legacy, I think, will be specific, um, certainly in terms of, of, of Bosnia, but also the work he's done more recently in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I think it will also be um, a, a legacy that, that is about the art of diplomacy because he was an unusual, possibly uh, unique diplomat with that range of skills, both to be diplomatic, but also to get things done and to be an unstoppable force when he needed to be. Uh, Christopher, how significant was Richard Holbrook's contribution in Afghanistan? Who do you think should take over from him? He, his, his contribution, not so much in Afghanistan, but in, in Washington, was very, uh, very high. Mm. I, asked him, I once said to him, what about progress? How do you judge progress? And he politically sort of looked round and he said, well, he said, we, uh, we change the I definition every four years. In other words, every time there's a new president, mm. we have to think again. But they and have said there's a void, haven't they? There it, is a void. A there is a void. And I think that the problem with uh, the, the, the Americans at the moment, they actually don't need anybody at the moment. What they have to uh, decide is whether it's going to be a military mind to go in there or yet another uh, uh, sort of service, uh, service uh, 
foreign foreign service man. So who do you think should replace him? Uh, There's a man called Max Max Jacobson, but I don't think he will actually do it. All right. But he should do because he's one of the few people that will actually talk Holbrook language. Will there be an announcement soon, do you think? Uh, yeah, there'll be an announcement. I suspect there may be. We may even hear something later today. All right, thank you. BFBS SIPREP. Well, questions are being asked this week on both sides of the Atlantic about NATO's strategy in Afghanistan. In the UK, a former Prime Minister has questioned David Cameron's promise to get British combat forces out of the country by 2015. Sir John Major says he's wary of setting such a specific timetable. If you were the Taliban, what would you do if you knew troops were going to leave in 12 months or 24 months? I think you would just wait until they had gone and reappear in a wave. And if you were the Afghan politicians who knew they had to deal with the Taliban after the Allied troops had gone, how would you react? I think you would be wary too. But the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, denies the withdrawal timetable has boosted insurgents. There are no short-term milestones in terms of numbers, so there is no possibility of us setting out in advance the numbers that will draw in 12 or 24 months. Uh, The Prime Minister made clear that we may be able to reduce troop numbers if conditions on the ground are suitable. But he's also told the Defence Select Committee the deadline could send the signal Britain's not there for the long term, admitting there's an upside and... A downside. Um, Christopher, let's start with Sir John Major's comments. Do do you agree the Prime Minister's 2015 withdrawal deadline is a mistake? It's uh, not the Prime Minister's deadline, I mean, if that's what he thinks. What I do agree with the idea of uh, uh, Sir John Major is that traditionally you do not say we're going out because the bad guys can just sit there. And we had this through the whole of Iraq. Mm. In Iraq, how many times did you say, when are we pulling out? And prime ministers, foreign secretaries, defence secretaries, presidents would say, we can't say that sort of thing, because eventually the bad guy can actually turn around and say, listen, um, we chased them out. And so the whole thing is absolutely cockeyed, and therefore everybody will see it as political. Political for President Literally Obama, keeping the public happy, basically, uh, is it? Co- well, com- convi- keeping not only the, the, the voter happy, but in America's uh, case, also keeping Congress happy. Um, today, this week, um, Commons Committee has criticised the overspend at the Ministry of Defence, the Public Accounts Committee, and it says it's uh, approved plans that were clearly unaffordable. What's going wrong here exactly? It's been going wrong, quite frankly, uh, since I can remember, 1984, when Peter Levine was brought in to actually change it. The Ministry of Defence is one of the most incompetent ministries that you could imagine existing. If you were writing a comedy about it, you'd actually take the script of what's going on at the moment. Mm. The present chief of materiel, uh, 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 the general there, General Donoghue, is considered a joke by a lot of his friends. He's going next month. They're thinking of actually trying to bring in the, the former head of BP, of all people, Lord Brown, to run it instead of the general. Well, the Americans will love the bo- former boss of BP coming in. Mm. And so it is that sort, of, that sort of thing. It is through incompetence. It is a huge job. Uh, can it be fixed, do you think? Or is it something that we're going to be saying in another five years' time, exactly the same kind of thing about it? won't fix it in five years. How long is it going to take no, to fix? No, it won't fix it in five years. What's happening at the moment is that uh, Peter Levine, Lord Levine, is chairing a group that is going to restructure the whole defence ministry. We'll know about that next July. But this group, big deal, it meets once a month. <laughs> now, that doesn't sen- give me a sense of urgency. Uh, and what about the new kind of posts that are being created to keep an eye on the expenses and the kind of deals that are being made? Well, that's part of it. 
But you see, the whole thing has got to be restructured, and they'll be l- looking around and saying some of the senior officers. You know, you get a general who everybody admires, great general, great mm. soldier, great admiral, great airman. What happens? They go into a department, they're there for two and a half years, they're not experts. Leave them to soldiering, sailoring and, and airing. So this toxic legacy that Defence Secretary talks about, uh, can it be fixed? Is there really the will and the commitment to do that? Well, there is at the moment. And it's also whether physically it can actually do it. And that is the important thing. I would say we could be back here in five years' time saying, why didn't it work? Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, what can be done about Islamist militancy in the UK and the efforts to stop former members of the forces ending up on the streets this Christmas? Sweden is widely seen as modern, tolerant and a European nation, but last weekend it became the latest target for terrorists. And the man believed to be behind the suicide attack in Stockholm has links to the UK. Taimor al-Abdali was a Swedish citizen born in Iraq, but he studied in Luton and investigators suspect that that's where he was radicalised. It's not the first time Luton's been linked to Islamic extremism. Paul Osborne has more. Luton may be 30 miles away from London, but if you believe what some newspapers have been saying, it is another world. For years, it's been associated with Islamist extremism. The hardline group Al-Muhajirun, which has since been banned, was based in Luton, and it was in Luton that the 7th of July bombers met before launching their attacks on London five years ago. And now it seems the latest terrorist strike can be traced back to Bedfordshire. Iraqi-born Swede Taimur al-Abdali studied in Luton and attended the town's Islamic Centre, but his radical views saw him confronted about his true beliefs. Farasat Latif was one of the men who forced Al Abdabi out of the mosque. He turned up and he immediately became quite popular, was very friendly, and then used that as an opportunity to propagate some of his beliefs, which we considered uh, heretical, uh, extremist. And we approached him and told him to refrain, basically, and also tried to explain to him the error of his ways. When he persisted in promoting his views, we took the step of basically publicly rebutting his his beliefs and then he stormed out the mosque. Luton's unenviable reputation as a flashpoint town grew in March this year. This is where the Islamists had their protest against the Royal Anglican soldiers when they were parading through the centre of Luton. When you have things like this going on, obviously it's going to cause a lot of anger and resentment. The members of the Royal Anglian were abused by a small group of Muslim protesters in Luton as they returned from a tour of duty in Iraq. And that has attracted the attention of groups on the right. The English Defence League had invited Pastor Terry Jones, the man who'd threatened to burn the Koran, to speak in Luton next year, until the Home Secretary threatened to ban him. But Tommy Robinson, who's from the EDL, says Luton's Muslim elders aren't doing enough to tackle extremism. Every single freshers' week in our town, when your children are the most vulnerable because they're going away from home for the first time, we have organisations and militant Muslims from Luton standing and recruiting, and no-one's doing nothing about it. Why are the moderate Muslims of Luton, why are they not down there protecting our youth? It's a claim that Farasat Latif rejects. He's using this as uh, an opportunity to have another bash at Muslims. He's saying, why do the Muslims not do this? Why do they not do this? He does not know what the Muslims are doing. He hasn't got a clue. Maybe he should come and sit down and talk to us and see for the last 20 years we've been tackling violent radicalisation. Some people living in Luton say the town has never been so sharply divided. Others say the extremists are just a tiny minority of loudmouths 
who threaten community cohesion. All agree the extremists must be confronted, but even those who are trying to stop them admit there are bigger issues at play. I've been working against violent extremists for the last 15 years, and I've seen since the war against Iraq and Afghanistan, there has been an upsurge in violent radical views. And I do believe that the American foreign policy uh, has contributed to violent radicalisation. Farisat Latif ending that report from Paul Osborne. Well, James Brandon is from the Quilliam Foundation, which looks for ways to tackle extremism. Thanks for your time today, James. Uh, Let's start with that last point, that the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan have encouraged extremism. Do you buy that? Well, I think uh, they're an important part of the picture, but they're not the sole cause. I think if you look at how radicals talk about Iraq and Afghanistan, they're things that they add to their, their very long, very large list of grievances to their if you want, their further evidence that the West is against them. This is how it's used. Like, if you look at uh, Al Abdali's statement, this is the guy who tried to carry out this suicide attack in Stockholm. He did mention Iraq and Afghanistan, but he also mentioned other issues as well, like the Danish cartoons. And if you look at the history of radicalization in places like Luton, you see it going right back to the, the mid-1990s. So this is 15 years, uh, sorry, seven years before Iraq and before Afghanistan. Do you think it would make any difference if we withdrew from Afghanistan? I think in the short term it might help. It might take some of the anger out of some of the sections of the Muslim community. But in the long run, I don't think it would really make any difference. Firstly, because you'd see al-Qaeda move back into Afghanistan and you'd see them training people as they were in the 1990s. And the second thing is that the radicals would find a new cause to rally people around, uh, whether it's aspects of British society or other aspects of British government policy that they don't like. So yes, in the short term it might seem to make things better, but in the long run the radicals are still going to be there and they're still going to be trying to stir things up against British society and against the British government. As far as al Abdali's concerned, several people at the mosque in Luton expressed concerns about his views, and yet no one went to the police. Were they right in not going to the police, do you think? Well, I, th- I think it's a, a very difficult call to talk about this. Um, this the, the mosque confronted him around four years before he actually tried to carry out this attack, um, and they say that, yes, he had radical views, but he wasn't talking about violence, he wasn't talking about terrorism, and that if he'd done so, then they would have gone to the police. I think uh, this is really the challenge, not just for the Muslim community, but for society in general to decide where you draw the line. At what point does someone's radical views become so radical you've got to talk to the police about it? And at what point do you just say, well, this guy's got some nasty ideas and we're going to leave him to get on with it? And where do you think that line should be drawn? Do you have an idea? Well, I think, um, in in a sense, the mosque has been right, that it it does seem like when people are talking about committing acts of violence, that's when you definitely need to go to the police. But the thing is, there are also some warning signs where maybe they're not talking about committing an act of violence now, but you can see them going down that path. So maybe, maybe they should have started to raise some concerns with the police as well. All right. James Brandon from the Quilliam Foundation, thank you very much. Uh, Christopher, we're told in Afghanistan to tackle extremism at its roots. That's why we're there, to stop it from spreading. But it seems it's already here. And it, was, and it was already here. Um, we've got to separate two things. Uh, we're not in Afghanistan to stop al-Qaeda. And most we have the, been told by that, yeah, by the Defence Secretary. That's right, past. but that's not what we're there for. We're actually there to sort of try and, try and destroy Taliban. And it's quite a different thing. Taliban in Afghanistan, there are two Talibans, one in Afghanistan, one in Pakistan. But al-Qaeda is something which is it, it's quite a different sort of body. The, what we're talking about in radicalization is really those people that will go not to support Taliban necessarily. They will go to talk to the people who will train them so that they can be part of this sort of really grey network that is supported and then is controlled by uh, al-Qaeda. For example, there were two Britons killed six days ago by an American drone 
in, in, in Pakistan. And they were traveling in a car. And they're supposed to be people who'd gone there to try and get training from al-Qaeda and were being trained. That is the big problem. And that is the problem. The radicalization in the United Kingdom is going to grow. It is, and it won't grow even if we come out of Afghanistan. Christmas Day with us. The homeless charity crisis is opening its Christmas shelters in the next few days and in previous years it would have expected an influx of former service personnel now living on the streets. In 1997, research suggested more than one in five homeless people had served in the forces. A decade later, a separate study suggested it was just one in ten. So what's the situation today? Reporter Chris Roberts has been investigating for BFBS and he's on the line now. Uh, Chris, you found that there are fewer ex-service personnel personnel on the streets now, have you? Hi there, Kate. You know that famous quote about there being three kinds of lies? You know, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. I think it was Churchill quoting Mark Twain, quoting somebody else. Well, the more I researched this story, the more that quote came back to haunt me. If you simply Google homeless ex-military, you'll find a series of articles and figures that do make quite depressing reading. There is a May 1997 survey that you touched on there that's suggesting... Almost one in four, in fact, of the people who were questioned on one night in London had an ex-military background. Or if you jump forward to 2008, there was an estimate that around 1,100 people uh, living on the streets in London or in hostels on that one night uh, was, were basically veterans. Now, the trouble is that just because it's there in black and white, it doesn't actually mean that it's true. There are people who lie about having a military background to get some more help. There are different definitions of exactly what homeless is. I mean, if you're just sleeping on a mate's sofa, you know, it's not what we would understand to be homeless. Now, I'm not suggesting that there aren't any ex-military personnel who've fallen on some very hard times in civil life, but I cannot find any hard evidence, and I've been working on this for two or three weeks now, to suggest that it's anything like as bad as some websites would have you believe. If I, if I can just give you one more figure on a positive note, it's from a charity called Broadway, uh, these are their figures for the last 12 months up to the end of November. Uh, they found just over 2% of people that they spoke to claimed to have an ex-military background. So just a tiny, tiny fraction of a survey a few years ago. Um, let's bring in now Hugh Milroy, the Chief Executive of Veterans Aid. Um, Hugh, what's your reading of the situation in terms of numbers of ex-service personnel on the streets? I think, that's, uh, I think Chris has actually hit the nail in the head here. Uh, what we've done is uh, the ex-service action group, the, the veterans community, has been working very hard uh, to make a difference. And, and in fact, we really are uh, driving these figures down. And, and I would think that's about right. Uh, for those former service personnel who are homeless, what kind of help is available for them? Well, <laughs> it is quite staggering the amount of help that is available for veterans in crisis. I mean, we, we, we for example... People into university, we've put people into uh, into homes, we've put people into detox facilities. It's just, uh, and, and we're just one charity. So times that, times several thousand charities for veterans. And uh, the situation is, the reality is that actually in the UK today, if you are in crisis and you are a veteran, you are very lucky. You're Citizen Plus. 
Uh, Chris, um, from your reading of the situation, from being out there and talking to people on the streets, um, did you get any feel for why service personnel would be on the streets? Yeah, it's the, it's the same reason. Do you know why? Because service personnel are like you and me. They're human beings, and they are haunted by the same demons that can haunt civilians, whether it's a marital breakup, drugs, alcohol problems, all these kinds of things can mean that your life falls apart and you end up on the street. Just, it's interesting you're talking to Hugh, because I had a chat with him this morning, and he directed me to the Veterans Aid website, and he said, click on a short film called Roy's Story. Uh, it's about an ex-squad he served a long time in Northern Ireland and how his life fell apart and how he rebuilt it. It will break your heart and lift your soul at the same time. It's an extraordinary film, and, and well done to Hugh for making it. Uh, Hugh, uh, what more could be done to help people prepare for life outside the forces and stop them from falling into homelessness? Yeah, I mean, homelessness at the end of the day is just a consequence. The, the pathways into homelessness, I have to say, I've been involved right in the front line of veterans in crisis for 15 years. The pathways are enormous. And, and virtually no one I've ever spoken to in all these years, right in the front line, taking people from all over the country, all over the world, has anything to do with life in the armed forces. We, the average age of people we are seeing is in the late 30s, 40s, uh, and they've been out years. So actually, the, the thing is not about transition at all. If I were to point to a particular issue, it is this. It is that there needs to be a debate in this country about who veterans are. Who are veterans in the 21st century? And this is at government level. And if the government is really serious about looking after the 5.5 million veterans in mm -hmm. this country, they need to decide who they are and if they've got any rights, what they're going to do for them. All right. Are our rights as veterans? Hugh Milroy, good to talk to you. I must mention there is a blog on our website of yours that we can see, bfbs.com slash news. And Chris Roberts also, thank you for your time. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, before we go, Christmas is coming, time of peace and love and all that stuff. I presume we're going to have a quiet week, aren't we? I've never seen one yet. I remember 1979 it started, in my mind anyway, and uh, I was with somebody uh, in Special Forces, and he said, watch it. Watch the, watch the headlines. The Russians are about to do it. And the Russians in Christmas week went into Afghanistan. Uh, I think just <laughs> do not relax. Oh, dear, not a good omen. Thank you, Christopher. It's good to see you again. That's it for this week. Um, next week, it's the last sit-rep of the year. And in a special programme, we'll look back at the biggest stories of 2010. We'd love to hear what you think of the Defence Review, progress on Afghanistan, etc. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Do get in touch and thanks for listening. And see you again next week. Bye-bye. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.